You're listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Tamara was prescribed opioid medication to manage her chronic severe headaches. She had a steady career and lived in a comfortable home with her son. She became addicted to opioids within a year and started needing larger and larger doses to experience the same high the pills once provided. She got prescriptions from four different doctors. Then she started buying pills on the street. Soon, the only thing that mattered to Tamara was finding a way to hold on to the numb feeling that she got from the drugs. Her career, her home, most of her retirement savings all went to her addiction. Eventually, Tamara's son had to go live with his father so she could get treatment. Now, this story has a relatively happy ending. After a number of years, Tamara overcame her addiction, although she still suffers from hearing loss, digestive problems, and throat damage that affects her voice. Her son still lives with his father. However, she and her son have a good relationship. Tamara now works at a recovery center. Tamara is one of over 10 million Americans who misused opioids in 2018. That includes over 800,000 heroin users. In 2017, there were more than 70,000 overdose deaths. That's more than 130 people who died every day. It is beyond question that opioid addiction is a national crisis and it is not slacking off. Are the nation's courts ready to take the lead in fighting this epidemic? What needs to be done, and who should do it? I'm Pete Keever, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by the Honorable Dwayne Sloan. Judge Sloan is a circuit court judge in Tennessee and winner of the 2018 National Center for State Courts Distinguished Service Award. Also joining us today is Deborah Taylor Tate. Ms. Tate is director of the Tennessee Administrative Office of the Courts and co-chair of the National Judicial Opioid Task Force. The task force has recently released its report, Courts as Leaders in the Crisis of Addiction. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having having us. Director Tate, tell me a little bit about the origins of the National Judicial Opioid Task Force. When was it organized, and who was the moving force behind its development? Well, thanks, Pete, for having us so much. I think that many of your listeners probably know that more Americans have died of the opioid epidemic than cancer or gunshot or even automobile crashes. Um, The epidemic really has been more dire than the entire Vietnam War was. And as you talked about, has been very devastating to individual families. And so While the numbers are staggering and the toll has been on many communities across the country, part of the story has been untold, and that is that most of these people end up at some point in front of a judge or in a courtroom, whether they have been arrested or stopped for stealing to feed their addiction or whether the children have been removed because the parents have been deemed unfit, whatever the reason the state court justice system has really become the referral source for addiction treatment in the country. So 
as we began to notice this both at the local and then the state and the national level, the National Conference of Chief Justices and the Conference of State Court Administrators actually recognized the need to respond and actually passed a formal resolution that would establish a task force. Now, what's interesting is that the governors and the state legislators had been seeing this and had actually been working on it for many years, whether passing laws that needed to be changed about prescribing uh, techniques. And so it finally became evident that the court system needed to react. And so the, the National Task Force was developed in 2017, and we have been working since then to train and provide resources to local state judges about tools, best practices, and the most successful programs so that we can really serve as effective partners in the management and hopefully to the end of the addiction crisis. Judge Sloan, the 1994 crime bill portrayed the drug problem as largely a criminal justice issue. Now we look at the opioid crisis as a public health concern. This can even be seen in Tennessee's new approach, known as the Tennessee Recovery-Oriented Compliance Strategy, or TENROCS. Were we wrong in 1994? And what's the basis for this change in perspective? In the early 90s, actually, in late 91, I was a drug trafficking prosecutor. My position was funded by a federal grant in the height of the war on drugs. The crisis of the day was crack cocaine, and to your uh, point about it being largely a criminal justice issue, that was exactly how it was viewed. But I'd like for the audience to think about who the targets were primarily, and that was the African-American population. And it was viewed as them, not us, and not affecting us uh, when we're talking about the broader population, particularly the white population. And we uh, developed sentencing for laws, particularly in the federal system, that with really large sentences with the idea of being able to flip lower-level dealers up the chain to go after the larger cartels and larger distributors of drugs. So you fast-forward to the opioid crisis that got its foothold in rural areas of the country, particularly in Appalachia. And from there, though, it broadened out to the suburbs. And today, it really has no socioeconomic boundary. And it affects all ethnic groups, but it particularly got a foothold in in affluent white America. So you had children and mothers and fathers dying in suburban America. And with the increase in the number of deaths due to the uh, lethality of these drugs, that is what's really gotten our attention. So were we wrong in 1994? The question is, was it largely a criminal justice issue? And the question is definitely we were wrong. Because addiction, any drug addiction, drives crime. So now it being a public health concern is being viewed that way, and it's appropriately so. It should be viewed that way. However, there are uh, there's a false narrative in the nation about we're punishing people for their addiction. That is not completely accurate because we're punishing people for addiction, say, uh, as opposed to any other uh, disease or disorder like diabetes. A person with diabetes does not steal from their mother because of diabetes or burglarize from their neighbor or uh, rob and murder their pharmacist. So there's criminal activity that's associated with a drug addiction in addition to just the simple possession or dealing or selling enough to be able to support your your own addiction. 
so I think, you know, were we wrong in 94 in our approach? Absolutely. I'm giving you the basis, I think, in the change of perspective that it's a, it's very broad. It's a very deep. Uh, there's, it was widespread availability and the social acceptance of opioids driven by the pharmaceutical industry and uh, physicians. So then that morphed into the cheaper, uh, more potent heroin. And now we're at fentanyl and many analogs, highly lethal. But at the end of the day, we, it is a public health concern, but we got to go to the roots of the problem and address, uh, you know, what is driving the addiction to start with. Director Tate, the report's fifth overarching principle states that courts should objectively assess performances and practices that work using robust data collection, quality assurance practices, and data-driven decision-making. Now, objective program evaluation is a pretty rigorous and specialized function. As an example, agencies that are being evaluated should never be the ones funding the evaluation, yet this happens fairly regularly in the criminal justice system. How can courts prepare for the role of overseeing objective evaluation? Well, obviously, we couldn't agree more, and both the National Chief Justices Conference and court administrators as well are working hard on doing precisely what you're talking about, and that is robust data collection, so that we can use that data to make the best decisions possible. I think the judge may have some real-world examples of how that happens at the actual court and judge level. Judge? Thank you, Director Tate. Courts have been evaluated now for years, and especially court setting like the Drug Recovery Court, have been evaluated both from uh, outside agencies and then uh, within our states with regard to the body that oversees the specialty courts. And once standards are set and metrics are in place, then the evaluation, I think, can, can happen. In the area where maybe it's a promising practice, though, I think one of the points that, that is being made here is you, do, you wouldn't want your own agency to be doing the, the only one doing the evaluation. You want outside agencies to do that. And right now, one of the programs that we've had a lot of success with, we call Tennessee Recovery Oriented Compliance Strategy. Uh, we're in the process of obtaining a funder to do the really rigorous evaluation from the outside. And so I think we continue to we rely on outside evaluations. And then once we have programs in place that uh, we're we set the metrics and standards, and then we can continue to monitor ourselves. But we should always open ourselves up to outside review because we should always be about getting better to be able to maximize our opportunities with the people that we see. Director Tate, the report's fourth finding urges that state courts design programs and resources that will be effective for the next addiction crisis, not just this current opioid crisis. Some have thought that the next addiction crisis will come right out of left field. For example, some have speculated that it will be virtual reality gaming. What does the task force think is the next most likely addiction crisis? Well, interestingly, Judge Sloan and I were able to be with the Surgeon General at the White House actually a few weeks ago, and it was very interesting because he said, yes, the opioid crisis is killing thousands of Americans. The larger addiction crisis is killing people. But he said that the real crisis is the crisis of stigma. And I found that very interesting because it also weaves into some of the problems in more rural areas, Appalachia, even the southwestern part of the United States. 
But I think that your basic question is, how do we prepare ourselves, whatever the next new drug is? So the judge mentioned fentanyl, there's carfentanyl. There are now all of these various analogs that are flowing into our country. And so I don't think that we necessarily can specifically name what the next addiction is. One of the issues is that we need to look at the underlying mental and behavioral health issues, and that is actually next on the National Judicial Opioid Task Force's agenda, that we are now going to morph into a larger and deeper dive about the impact that these underlying mental health disorders have. ACEs, the traumatic experiences that our youngest citizens are having, and then how that makes them more vulnerable to any type of addiction or addictive behavior, whether it's a drug or, as you note, a particular behavior. I don't know if the judge wants to add anything to that, but I think that that's one of the reasons that we have created all these resources. Although this was a a specific opioid task force, we indeed recognized that we are going to have to be armed with resources, with bringing our communities together, with helping people resolve the issues that we refer to as social determinants in the most positive way possible, working across sectors, cross-disciplinary, and of course, cross-branch to solve these problems. But I'll let Judge add to this if he has something that he's seen regarding the larger addiction problems. Now, Director Tate, I think you absolutely uh, were spot on in everything that you said. I mean, the nation, especially rural America again, and this has been the case now for years, that methamphetamine is pervasive. We really live in a day of polysubstance use, and a lot of what is being used is a matter of economics. It's supply and demand and how much you you get for what you pay for. And so the methamphetamine now is not being cooked at home. It's being imported from Mexico, and it is 90, 95% pure. A lot of the danger there is it's also being included is the fentanyl analogs. And so the methamphetamine, and then there's also a large increase in cocaine again, but they're cocaine and methamphetamine are delivery vehicles for the fentanyl analogs that are still killing people. And so we can't keep chasing the drug, I think is uh, Director Tate main point. We've got to look at the social determinants of health, what is driving addiction, and then in our roles in the court, what can we do uh, to maximize our opportunities when we interface with them in the courts, but then also what can we do in our roles as citizens within our own communities and our states. Director Tate, this is a two-part question. Many see drug courts as central to solving the opioid crisis in America. However, drug courts are known for, one, only being able to handle a relatively small number of participants, and two, offering relatively short-term treatment, often lasting less than a year. The opioid crisis involves tens of millions of victims. How can drug courts be the answer with their small capacity for participants? How can they scale up? Pete, I think that you've come to exactly the right person in the country to talk to about this, and it's really Judge Sloan, and I want to brag on him for a moment. He was recently awarded by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court the William Rehnquist Award, and one of the reasons that he received that award is because he has been 
so innovative and he has been a terrific drug and recovery court judge. But what he really recognized was that every judge needed to have training to deal with these people because as I mentioned at the beginning, this is impacting every court. So from juvenile court to probate court to civil court, all the civil legal issues like bankruptcies that emanate from people with drug addictions. And so he had this concept of a whole new curriculum that could be spread much wider to basically every judge in America. So I'll let him tell you a little bit about what we uh, call here in Tennessee Tin Rocks, uh, because that is precisely what we are trying to showcase here is that unfortunately, as successful and as wonderful as our drug courts are, due to the huge numbers, we just cannot drug court our way out of this problem. Judge? Our drug recovery courts in the United States, I think we are serving approximately 120,000 people with a little over 3,000 drug recovery courts. In Tennessee, 78,000 people are on felony supervised release. We have only 2,000 people in our drug recovery courts, and that includes misdemeanors and felonies. And our number of drug recovery courts, I think, are 72. So our numbers are pretty consistent with the national population. But drug recovery courts are fantastic. They've led the way for the rest of us in the United States and created uh, great educational tools and standards. However, you cannot scale up. We will not scale up those specialty courts to meet the magnitude of this crisis. So at the end of the day, all judicial stakeholders, from the judge to the lawyers to the probation officers and everyone with a touch point, has to have basic education. And I want to applaud uh, Director Tate and Chief Justice Rush for their leadership in the National Judicial Opioid Task Force and the Conference of Chief Justices for ensuring that every judge has the opportunity to have this type of training and education. At the end of the day, it's not complicated. We need to recognize where we bring value in the courts. If we have that basic education in place, and then we use what we've always had, and that's our ability to provide accountability and leverage. And the first thing, we need to be able to immediately link the people that come before us to the appropriate level of service. And that behavioral health treatment plan then becomes a condition, for example, in the criminal justice setting of their pretrial release or their sentence. And then we continue to monitor their progress through probation officers and more frequent court appearances and make adjustments where we need to. And so we've had really tremendous outcomes now since 2013 using the Tennessee Recovery-Oriented Compliance Strategy. Drug court is a recovery-oriented compliance strategy. Physicians and airlines pilots have a recovery-oriented compliance strategy, but the essential components are, are just three, and that is an accurate assessment, immediate linkage to the best available uh, treatment and recovery support services, two, an accountability piece, and three, leverage. And that's this place that courts have, particularly in criminal justice settings, is there's no clinician, no physician in the United States of America can almost make somebody stay engaged in their treatment, but a judge can't. So a well-trained judge can understand that recovery takes time, and it's about holding people in long enough to where the, the brain starts functioning the way it was originally designed. And by doing that, we have incredibly good outcomes. 
but this kind of training and this methodology and this model can be used by every criminal court judge. It can be used by every juvenile court judge, and even I even use it in family court in my post-divorce custody situations. It's really, at the end of the day, not rocket science. It's not that complicated. It's a matter of rethinking our, our roles and using resources that we have to improve outcomes. There is a fourth essential element, and that is relationship. And at the end of the day, that's how we solve the addiction crisis. The opposite of addiction is relationship. And that is the, the relationship building, particularly with the probation officers and the person with the substance use disorder, and then with the court, I think is really where the magic happens. Pete, I'll just add that the National Task Force also uh, was so impressed with this curriculum and with Judge Sloan's coming up with the Ten Rocks concept that we invited and hosted with SJI funding a training on this curriculum for uh, judges from all 50 states. I think we ended up with 48 states and and uh, some territories who participated. And Judge Sloan, along with very sophisticated addiction experts, co-taught this curriculum as well as the other materials that the task force had presented so that we were able to take 10 rocks and now allow it to spread across the country so that judges in every state will be able to utilize this at every level of court. The second part of the question, many have advised that long-term treatment along with permanent replacement drug therapies such as with naloxone is the only effective regime. Given that most drug court treatment programs last less than a year, can drug courts truly be effective? I'm not sure about the average length of a drug recovery court. Now, that may be true in a misdemeanor court setting, but in a felony court, you're going to have longer than a year. And the ideal for a drug recovery court is two years. And that is in alignment with how long it takes the, the brain to start functioning in a normal way. I love the five-year recovery court model. And in many felony cases, of course, I even have the five years. In the Ten Rock system, it's open-ended. And to continue to come alongside that person for an extended period of time to make sure that we have good outcomes. But at the end of the day, if you only have 90 days with that person, my good friend Craig Hanna up in Buffalo and the Opioid Intervention Court, it's really a stabilization model. And it takes that 90 days to become stabilized. And you have a behavioral health treatment plan in place. And so maybe the court's not involved anymore. But now you have someone stabilized and you can hope that they continue in the recovery. But where you do have a longer period of time with them, we should maximize the opportunity in a very wise way to assist them. So, you know, medications, if they're needed for long term, that's a beautiful thing. If the recovery, though, is, is for a lifetime. But, you know, our U.S. Surgeon General uh, in 2016 published a full report on uh, how we address addiction in this substance use disorder in this nation. And, and he advocates for going to a five-year recovery model. So to the extent that we can be in alignment with, with that thinking uh, and do everything we can, whether it's for 90 days or longer, then we need to be adding the value that we can through the courts to improve outcomes. Opioid addiction is a national scourge. We'll learn more about how courts can take the lead in responding to this crisis after this short break. This is T. 
Madison, Deputy Court Administrator in Tucson, Arizona. I'm a NACOM board member and the chair of the Early Career Professional Subcommittee, which meets on the first Wednesday of the month at noon Eastern Time. Throughout my career, I've taken advantage of all the resources, conferences, and opportunities offered through membership with NACOM, the National Association for Board Management. A few years ago, I decided to give back to this organization by joining in on the Conference Development Committee, which then led to me becoming a board member. NACOM is a volunteer organization. Its strength comes from members sharing their ideas and experiences with each other. There is so much work that goes on behind the scenes and mostly through committees. NACOM is always looking for folks to provide their expertise. If you are not a member, please consider joining NACOM today. Podcasts like the one you're listening to are only a tip of a variety of resources available. You can join by clicking the Join Us button on the NACOM website at nacomnet.org. If you are a member, you would like to help NACOM continue in its mission to promote excellence in the profession of court administration, I strongly encourage you to get more involved by joining a NACOM committee. Find committee descriptions and meeting schedules on the NACOM website, then simply join a committee call. You'll be glad you did. I know I was. Now we're back with Director Deborah Taylor-Tate and Judge Dwayne Sloan talking about how courts can take the lead in responding to the national opioid crisis. Director Tate, in the report, finding number one calls for expanding treatment services. More treatment services inevitably means the need for more funding. Courts are notoriously poor advocates for increasing funding, either for themselves or for other agencies. What new strategies can courts use to successfully lead the way to increase treatment funding? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that indeed was one of our goals, that judges and courts and court administrators become strong advocates, whether it's at the local or state or national level, and that we actually be at the table when these decisions are being made. So I'm really happy to report that in many ways, I think the task force over the past two years has made a big difference. Judge Sloan and several of our other judges have gone on some federal agency advisory boards. To my knowledge, this is one of the first times that the judiciary has ever been invited to do that so that we indeed are there to be part of the conversation. In several instances, courts are now able to actually apply for or be a partner with another applying agency. The judge and I have been part of several summits with federal funding agencies that have included the judiciary, and now more often, judges and courts are able to actually apply for some of the increased funding. And then in addition to that, obviously, we want to be very vocal. I know I have been in my budget hearings in front of our state legislature. I know that many chief justices in their remarks to their legislature and their executive branch in their state of the judiciary speeches have included treatment and the need for additional funding and resources for the court in those remarks. So I think that that is one of the things that the task force is trying to do is also enhance leadership and advocacy training 
at every level of court and judge so that indeed we are making our needs and the citizens' needs that come before us known to the larger community and to the funding agencies, whether those are at the local, the state, or the national level. Judge Sloan has been a true example of one judge making a difference in his community, of collaborating with universities, medical centers. He talked about the MCOs and the providers themselves. So he may want to add some just of his personal advocacy to increase treatment funding. Judge? One of the things that I would add is really not a, a new strategy, but whether I'm talking to um, a local county commission or our state legislature or uh, whoever the purse string holder is, we ought to always think, have in mind what is the return on your investment. And when we have the data that in hand to show uh, the improved outcomes, then we can be more assured that we're going to have the increased funding we need. And so we have the case examples like we have in our local two counties in East Tennessee, where we have a 50% reduction in burglary rates. We don't, do not have jail overcrowding. We've drastically reduced recidivism rate. We have 80 mothers in felony criminal court that have healthy births with their children and 90% retain custody of their children. So you're able to do the economic analysis and show the return on the investment being made in order to scale up uh, strategies like Tenrock. You're able to show the MCOs the, the savings that they're able to have by including components uh, that we have into their own systems as an investor. So we can think outside of just our typical government by way of funders. There are other people that are being economically impacted like our business community and, and the insurance industry that are potential funders. Director Tate, the task force acknowledges that rural courts have traditionally been underfunded and underserved. What does the task force recommend so rural courts can overcome this particularly chronic problem? Yes, the impacts have been really devastating for our rural areas. And of course, Tennessee has a large, large number of rural areas and, and are part of the whole Appalachian region that has been hit so hard. It's hard to imagine that only 10% of doctors even practice in rural America, and rural homes are home to 70% fewer specialists per 100,000 people. And then, of course, those 100,000 people are strewn across large geographic areas, not only in Tennessee, but obviously in many states out west. So it is a very dramatic problem. Back to what the judge just mentioned, and that is also the lack of jobs in many rural areas. The economic downturn that hit many of those rural areas as well. And so I think that obviously we are training our rural judges to do many of the same things that we're talking about for urban judges. So that judges all are aware of what the funding sources are, what the partnerships are, and then also this hub and spoke model that I think Judge Sloan can probably talk about personally, but so that if there are not specialists in their area, how can they get connected with a medical hub? So in Tennessee, we have several of those. One is Vanderbilt and one is ETSU up in the far eastern area of Tennessee, right in the middle of Appalachia. 
And so he can probably tell you a little bit about how that is working so that we can utilize and get the specialized therapy and treatment out to these more rural areas. One of the other things that that absolutely requires is that we also have rural broadband. It is absolutely fundamental to increasing not just the care for persons with addiction, but overall health care in rural communities. So that is something that I know our state is really working on right now. Our governor has just announced $1.5 million to take a look and see what all we need in order to enhance the broadband capability to every part of Tennessee, the most rural parts especially. And so maybe the judge wants to talk a little bit more about the hub and spoke model. No, no I think you've covered everything uh, very well. Uh, one of the things that we try to practice here, though, is uh, being at rural communities uh, is to look around at the resources that we have and, and utilize those. In my two counties, I'm just thinking about our own uh, not-for-profit organization that supports our drug recovery court is the only licensed substance use disorder provider in Jefferson County. There's not one in Granger County. People are having to go out of the counties to uh, get their evidence-based treatment services. But it's the, the idea of utilizing a liaison that is able to meet the person where they are, and do the the warm, rapid connection to the treatment provider, doing all the scheduling and trying to remove barriers such as transportation to get to those providers. And we've had these outcomes with the limitations we've had. Director Tate makes a great point about utilizing teleservices more. That's not being highly utilized at all in Tennessee. We need to be using that more. We have an Appalachian Midwestern Regional Judicial Opioid Initiative, and one of our pilot projects is to bring more teleservices into our hotspots where there's more overdose deaths in the state and they're all rural areas to get people more used to using teleservices. So it's not only not having the availability of the teleservice through broadband, you might have it, but existing providers are not comfortable with using it. So we're trying to get the providers more comfortable to using the teleservices. Pete, I was also yes. going to mention another resource that I think some of your listeners may be interested in, especially those in rural areas. It's called the Rural Community Action Guide. It was actually launched by the Director of National Drug Control Policy in the White House. And it is a, an important tool that helps rural leaders with information, lessons learned, best practices all across rural America. And while Obviously, no two rural communities are the same. I mean, Tennessee is different from Arizona or Montana, that there are a lot of promising practices out there that can be replicated in other areas. And so I would really encourage anyone in a rural area to get a copy of the Rural Community Action Guide. You can get that either at the National Drug Control Policy on the White House or actually under USDA, that's the U.S. Department of Agriculture's website. But again, just full of really terrific projects that have had some very positive outcomes in rural communities. Judge Sloan, urging judicial leadership means judicial advocacy. By judges taking a leading role in dealing with the opioid crisis, are they at risk of losing their role as the impartial arbiters within the system? 
I don't think so, not at all. Judges have been or should have been for years leaders in their community when they're off the bench in different roles, different civic groups, et cetera. And our drug recovery courts take a uh, more of an atypical uh, approach as opposed to what we typically view historically uh, as the judge's role in being more personally connecting with the participant, obviously with clear boundaries. But at the end of the day, if when we're talking about a judge and an individual, uh, a party, be it the state of Tennessee, for example, or a defendant, if there's ever a reason to think that the judge may be impartial because of a, a relationship or even a position taken, then, of course, uh, there's a recusal process that's in place in every state. But I think we have to be mindful of boundaries, though. For example, one of the things that I can do is I, I'm mindful about my role of communicating information and not putting myself in a position of asking for money. And so we have clear ethical guidelines in, in every state that the judge has to be mindful that they don't cross. So I don't think that there's a risk of losing impartiality at all. I think it's just a matter of judges being more informed and more willing to step outside of what they typically associate with their jobs or their duties, if you will, as a judge. Pete, I'll just add to that. I've seen the judge in action myself when, for instance, a woman who was addicted and in front of him and pregnant, she gets referred to the recovery cabin that he mentioned a little while ago. When she comes back, he even takes the baby up on the bench. And what a joyful kind of reunion. I mean, to see the judge holding this precious, healthy baby and to see this mom talk about her recovery and all the milestones that she's met. And so um, some of our juvenile judges talk about how important it is that they may be the only person who has shown an interest in this young person who's dealing with addiction. And so they come off the bench and give them a hug. But I think that the judge is right, either because of process and procedures or because of the judge's ethical obligations. There are plenty of safety nets to ensure that the judge doesn't overstep their boundaries. But I think in some cases, this is the caring and concern that people have been lacking in their lives. And it may be the one reason that these people remain in recovery. Director Tate, the report discusses the sequential intercept model. Can you describe what this model is and who developed it? Sure. So the model originated originally as a concept of how to approach reducing the penetration of people who had mental illness throughout the criminal justice system. And very interestingly, the model used to start at number one. And when you look at one, it is law enforcement. So it was the point that someone was stopped or arrested or transported to jail. What's very interesting is that SAMHSA, that is the National Mental Health Federal Agency, where the funding comes down for all types of mental health services and including recovery courts. Now, SAMHSA has suggested that actually the sequential intercept model starts at, at intercept zero, which is community services, the community being involved in someone's life so that they never even get to that point 
of Intercept One. So that can be everything from mental health care, behavioral health care, crisis lines, basically just getting people to the help they need before they come to the attention of the court system. And then all along that model, Intercept Two is detention and initial court hearings. Maybe at that very first court appearance and assessment is done so that we see that this person actually needs services not to be put into jail. Intercept three actually is jails and court. So again, maybe that is headed to a specialty court or maybe that is once again diverting that person onto probation so that they can go stay in a recovery environment, for instance. Intercept four is actually re-entry. So that's actually after the person has served time, whether that is in a local jail or in prison. Here, what we really hope is that there's going to be a warm handoff, that whether there is job training or addiction services provided on the inside, that that person, as soon as they cross back into the community, has a warm handoff so they know exactly where they're going to go get whatever kinds of recovery services drug addiction services, job training, educational services, so that all that is a warm handoff. And then, of course, Intercept 5 is back in the community setting. So as the judge mentioned, whether that is parole or probation, whether that's checking back in with a judge or a probation officer, now they are firmly entrenched back into the community. And so it's just, it's all the steps and processes along the way that we can either divert people out of the system or we can ensure that they're getting the necessary supports that they need to be successful when they do come out of the system. Judge Sloan? Naloxone, often referred to as Narcan, is now regarded as an effective medication for drug overdose emergencies. How many courts in the country right now do you think have Narcan on site and have staff trained to use it? I actually have no idea uh, how many courts would actually have Naloxone on hand. My, my guess is very, very few. One of the recommendations of the National Judicial Opioid Task Force is that naloxone be available in every courthouse or justice center in the nation. I couldn't agree more. And absolutely, it needs to go beyond drug recovery courts. It needs to be anybody with a touch point really needs to be trained how from public libraries to uh, ballparks, anybody that um, comes in contact with people uh, that cares about people to spend the 10 minutes it takes to be trained to dispense Narcan, and it ought to be on site. I carry it with me everywhere I go. I would hate to think someone overdosed in front of me and that I know how it works and, and I have it available to me for free and I couldn't spend uh, a few minutes saving somebody's life. So everyone should be trained how to use it and, and it should be available. Um, I, I haven't been able to figure out how to work with dead people. Director Tate? The task force says that funding for opioid use disorder should be a national priority. Now, this crisis has been with us for several years and is only getting worse. Why isn't funding to treat opioid use disorder currently a national priority? Well, I think this goes back to some of the points that you have made earlier in your questions, and that is because the issue 
and the problem continues to evolve and change and actually grow larger. It has been declared a national health emergency by the president and hundreds of millions of dollars have been released by federal agencies. Making that connection to people on the ground is sometimes a little more difficult. And so I think that is one of the reasons that we continue to be out speaking in terms of the National Judicial Opioid Task Force. It is why Legal Services Corporation had a national task force. It is why the governors and the state legislators are continuing to raise this issue as a necessary federal funding issue. So I do think that we are becoming more collaborative in our requests, and I do think that it is being heard. I think back to the Rural Community Action Guide that I mentioned, and also the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, it's known as AAAP, also is producing a comprehensive resource guide. And so I think that more and more of the federal agencies are seeing that they need to get out and to provide education and training on how to actually access this funding. I'm very proud of what we've done here in Tennessee, and Judge Sloan and I have both been part of large summits and small summits, but to invite those federal funding entities to our state, I would encourage all of our sister states to do the same thing so that you begin to build those relationships with all the various federal funding agencies so that they can actually come and see some of the potential best practices, so that they can actually replicate and fund some of the programs that have had outstanding results, like Judge Sloan's Recovery Cabinet for Pregnant Women. So I do think that it is being seen as a national priority, but I also think that it is becoming more and more apparent that these this is part of many larger issues in our country, a larger addiction problem, a larger mental and behavioral health issue, the trauma that our young children are experiencing at very young ages and how to deal with that. So I think we have a lot more education to be done throughout our country, not just with the court system, but with all of our citizens. If, if I might, I, I would say this, and I think where Director Tate ended there is it is a matter of education in large part. So we have to educate, educate, educate across the board. But uh, Director Tate mentioned earlier about the Surgeon General's comment, and to paraphrase him, stigma is one of the biggest killers in this nation. And, and I think what he means by that is that because of the stigma of a substance use disorder, that it's Still, even though we've made progress, it, it is still uh, largely viewed as somebody else's problem. And until people can become fully aware and educated that this is a disorder of the brain and understand the drivers of addiction to start with and address those things, then we're, we're not going to make headway in this crisis. But while we've made headway and, a, and the federal government has been very responsive, but uh, what I see is it's not being given the priority, not not anywhere that it should, uh, because we where we spend our money is where our priority is. 
and so there's just I believe at the end of the day it's just educating and removing stigma is the biggest reason it's not the it's not given the priority that it should be given finally let's ask the question that we started this episode with are courts ready to take the lead in responding to the opioid crisis judge Sloan what do you think well I can speak for this judge I and I absolutely am and I love the response that I'm getting from my colleagues in the state of Tennessee to take the lead. And our Chief Justice, Jeff Bivens, and Director Tate, they, uh, they've been rallying our judges now for years. It, it's exciting for me to see older judges saying, we've been doing this the wrong way. We have to be approaching this in a different way within our courts and within our communities. And I, I get around the nation quite a bit. And I'm seeing an energy from the judiciary that is just incredible when the light goes on about the difference that they can make. And so are we ready? Uh, I don't know that we're fully there yet, but there's a fire that's been started, and I expect it to spread. Director Tate, what's your assessment? I would say absolutely. And I'm speaking for myself here in Tennessee. We have trained over a thousand judges, so all the way from juvenile judges and juvenile magistrates up to our Chief Justice of the Tennessee Supreme Court. So we have a commitment from the top, as Judge Sloan said, with our own Chief Justice, as well as the leadership of the Chief Justices from across the nation. So I think that there is energy and resources and a commitment to continuing to train and educate the judiciary, not only about the problem of substance abuse disorders, how to recognize it and some of the ways to treat it, but more importantly, how to use their platforms, their place as a leader in their own communities to make a difference. My thanks to Judge Dwayne Sloan and Director Deborah Taylor-Tate for joining us today and speaking about courts and the opioid crisis. Both of you have shed a great deal of light about the court's role in coping with this critical national problem. Director Tate, thank you for talking with us today. Thanks, Pete. Judge Sloan, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for having us. Let me remind our listeners that several reports mentioned in today's episode are available on the NACOM podcast landing page. This includes the report of the National Judicial Opioid Task Force titled Courts as Leaders in the Crisis of Addiction and the Rural Community Action Guide published by the Office of National Drug Court Policy. You can find these reports by going to this episode and clicking on Additional Resources. Now let's answer a listener question. Polina Pascarelli, mental health case manager for the 15th Judicial Circuit in West Palm Beach, Florida, emailed in a question about our December episode on dealing with multiple generations in the workplace. Here to ask that question is Polina, and here to respond are Zanelle Brown and Alicia Shannon from the December episode. So, Polina, what's your question? Thank you for having me. I'm a millennial and I keep an eye out for new positions. Now, I've already held three positions within court administration in the last five years. I feel like I've mastered most of the current functions of my work and I'm eager for new challenges. 
However, I'm afraid it will look like I'm unwilling to sit still and pay my dues. How can management encourage those of us who consider ourselves early career professionals to continue applying for positions, but not be looked down upon as unwilling to do one's time on a job? Now, let me start with Zanel. What do you think? Well, first of all, Paulina, great job for mastering the skills set that you have and being willing to continue to work in courts because we need people like that. So one of the things I think needs to happen probably doesn't even involve Paulina. It involves those who are in the workforce who are having those type of views about people who are moving to jobs quickly. In the current environment, we should be expecting that as courts that people are coming in usually well-equipped to do the work that most of us took a year or two to do, and we should not begrudge them the opportunities to go ahead and promote and to move on further in that work. So there has to be a culture shift there. If she's feeling that type of feeling in her workspace, there's probably some conversations that need to actually occur. So leadership becomes more informed and enlightened, that the way that the workforce is now You have to give people meaningful work early on, tell them what the expectations are, and reward them. And that reward could be a promotion if they're doing it well. We have to recognize that, and that is what our new work culture should be, that we are not expecting for someone to sit at a job for five years and wait their turn in line. Alicia, how do you respond? to agree with Zanel. I, I too would like to congratulate Paulina. I think what she has done in the court system, her promotions and such, that's great. That's commendable, actually. And it's what we look for. I do think there needs to be a change, a culture shift in the leadership so that we are encouraging um, people to, you know, to move forward. And a high performer definitely indicate someone who is going to excel, who who is looking for more advancement opportunities. And we want to applaud them and not hold them back and encourage them to seek other opportunities within the organization, which is great. I'd like to think that we, as leadership, would not look down upon someone who is promoting within the organization at all. Um, that That is to our benefit, and it definitely indicates a skill set that we want to move forward. And I would just add that if we don't change that culture, people are going to come in, get the skills, be able to do the next job, but if we're not willing to move them, they're going to move out. So we're going to lose talent. So it's really a business decision, a business operational decision. Yeah, this is a place where... You can come in if an opportunity is available and you're qualified for it. If you've been here a year, a month, three months, five years, apply for it and let's see, you know, where the chips fall. So I think Paulina definitely is doing the right thing and should keep it moving forward. My thanks to Paulina for sending in her question and to Alicia and Zanel for responding. Remember, if you have a question about this or any episode, email us at podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. In most cases, we'll answer your question at the end of a future episode. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Be sure to catch next month's episode. Is your court considering online dispute resolution? 
Well, next month, we'll hear from two individuals who have been deeply involved in the online dispute resolution movement. Until then, I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.